everyone, this is Aileen, and welcome to episode 46 of The Music Room. I am so excited today to be interviewing my sister-in-law, Megan Simcox, about teaching disabled students in music. Megan has a really unique perspective and has done some really wonderful work and has been an advocate for disabled students. I should mention that if you check the show notes, which you can find by going to my blog at mrsmiraclesmusicroom.com, then clicking podcast, and then selecting episode 46. You will find links to some of the adaptive tools that Megan and I talk about today. And if you check my Instagram at Mrs. Miracles Music Room, you'll see a adaptive tool for ukulele that I was able to get from my music room. So check that out as well. I've posted it pretty recently, so if you're listening to this as the podcast episode comes out, you should be able to find it pretty easily. All right, before we get into the interview, I would like to tell you a little bit more about Megan. Megan Simcox has been creating and performing in theatrical productions for over 20 years. As an alumnus of the Martins Ferry High School Drama Club, the OUE Department of Theater, and holding a Bachelor of Arts degree in acting from The Ohio State University, it is Megan's mission to make theater an equitable and inclusive institution to those who have been historically shut out. Megan has studied the techniques of Meisner, Stanislavski, Kristen Linklater, Lazix, Edith Skinner, Laban, Viewpoints, and IPA. Megan has worked professionally in the theater as an executive assistant to the director of the Palace Theater in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and its related international touring company, Spirit Productions, in which position Megan also got experience running auditions at the Ripley Grier Studios in New York City. Recently, Megan has completed the TFA acting program at the Queen's Theatre in New York City and worked as a guest artist, originating the role of Mac Marlowe in Cosmo St. Charles is Dead and Someone in This Room Killed Him at Carnegie Mellon University. Megan believes that theatre should hold a higher purpose in society, rather than existing for ticket sales and basic entertainment. Megan believes theatre has the power to change the world. It is with that in mind that Megan founded Active Roles Theater Company to offer free classes to local youth, free community performances, and a public outreach project to tackle local issues from the perspective of the youth in the community. Megan hopes this organization will provide an alternative after-school activity that will both enrich the lives of the students who participate as well as the local community. I know you will get a lot out of this interview with Megan. Here's the show. You are listening to The Music Room with Aileen Miracle. All right, I am so excited to be interviewing my sister-in-law, Megan Simcox, for episode 46. And the title of this podcast episode is Teaching Disabled Students in Music. So Megan, hi. Hello. It's great to be talking to you. So I would love you to just tell us about yourself and your journey as an educator and as a person with a disability. Yeah, when I was in college, probably as early as like 17 years old, I kind of made the decision that I wanted to pursue theater, which has a lot of similarities to music in a lot of ways, as a degree program, that is. And I knew that I wanted to be an actor, but I also knew that I wanted to be a director as well. And overall, my goal was to eventually be a teacher at the collegiate level in higher education. And so I got my bachelor's degree in theater, kind of, you know, wanting to be an actor and a director, but also wanting to teach at the college level. Mm -hmm. And so to to do that, you have to get an MFA in acting or directing. That's the terminal degree for the theater field. So I knew that that would be something I would want to pursue someday. But that being said, when I was in college, probably as early as like 19 and 20 years old, I started having these symptoms and it was really mild at first, but it was just like, I felt like all of the other 19 and 20 year olds were able to do so much more than I was. And I was just tired all the time and I couldn't stay awake and I couldn't concentrate and I didn't feel good. And, you know, I would force myself to do things, but it would be, you know, to my body's detriment. I was just like always running on empty. Then a few years later, after graduating, 
I got a job working in a theater. I didn't go to grad school like I had planned, but I did get a job working in a theater and I moved 700 miles away to um, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to work in a theater there. And it was like an international touring theater company out of what used to be the Palace Theater in Myrtle Beach. And I did that job for about a year and some change. And in the time that I was doing that job, I ended up in the hospital for almost a week. And I had numbness throughout my limbs and I was just having some really weird physical symptoms. And so the very first doctor I ever talked to said, I think you have multiple sclerosis. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. And so that was in 2008. And it got my parents all worked up. They came all the way down to Myrtle Beach and brought the dog and everything uh, on like an emergency trip. And by the time they got there, I'd already been released from the hospital because they ran a plethora of tests on me and could find nothing to support a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So another doctor kind of talked to me and told me that, you know, oh, there's this thing called Munchausen's and it's actually like a mental, a mental health illness where you believe you're sick with things and you it's almost like an extreme form of hypochondria, which is kind of an ableist term, but I believed her because they couldn't find anything to support the fact that my limbs felt numb, you know? Mm. And so I just thought, well, I'm an actor and I do like attention, you know, and maybe I'm not getting the attention I need. So I'm manifesting these symptoms of some like subtle subconscious cry for people to pay attention to me or something, you know? Right. Yeah, and so I left the hospital with $25,000 of medical debt and no insurance, and it took me years to pay some of that off. Other things got forgiven later on, but yeah, I was deeply in debt, and I still didn't have health insurance, and then the recession really hit hard in Myrtle Beach, and people weren't paying to see theater shows and going to the theater while they're on vacation when they could sit on the beach for free, so a bunch of us got laid off, and I was one of them, and it was devastating because I moved 700 miles for that job. But then, you know, kind of fast forwarding ahead, typical kind of recession story, trying to find work and having a hard time. I ended up switching careers and became a marketing specialist and graphic designer for the Harley Davidson company at some of their local dealers. Mm-hmm. And again, didn't have insurance. They offered insurance, but it was so expensive I couldn't afford it and started having symptoms again around 2012. So I went from 2008 to 2012 without having any symptoms that I noticed, but my doctor goes to tell me later there's all kinds of things you probably had going on that you just weren't aware of but in 2012 I got sick again my hand went numb and then three or four months later my hand wasn't numb anymore and then 2013 my hand went numb again and then a couple months later it wasn't numb and then by 2014 my hand went numb and this time I went to a neurologist and they did more tests I still didn't have insurance I had to pay for everything out of pocket which was terrible but I did get diagnosed with MS at that point. There was plenty of evidence then to show that I had MS. And I never recovered fully from that relapse in 2014 because I'd let it go so long untreated because I didn't have insurance and I didn't want these $25,000, $30,000 bills to keep rolling in. And so I was doing graphic arts at that point and it's my right hand that's mostly affected. I'm right-handed. So doing graphic design on a computer, I use like the Adobe suite for a lot of the design projects I worked on for print mostly and some magazine work and things like that. And um, I just couldn't do it anymore. I can do it, but it takes me so long with my numb hand to get it done. that There's like no business on earth who would ever pay me to do it because an, a project that should take an hour takes me like eight or nine hours. So that was no longer a viable career path for me. And I ended up going on disability and had a bunch of other bad things kind of all happen because of this health crisis all at the same time. And so about a year into that, around 2015, I started thinking about what I could do with my life with this new health problem that I was going to be having and these new disabilities that weren't going away. You know, I went to physical therapy, I went to a hand therapist, and there was just nothing they could really do for me. And so there's that, that crosses out a lot of jobs that I could potentially do with my hands specifically. But a lot of it also is because multiple sclerosis is such a on again, off again illness. There's not a whole lot of companies out there that are really cool with you taking two or three months off. It's time to recover from a health problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like ongoing, like, oh, every year I might have a time where I have to be off for a month or so recovering for something. But so I was just starting to think, you know, I really do still want to get my MFA in either acting or directing. 
and my long-term dream would to be to still be a teacher at the college level because at least that you know you work for a semester then there's usually a break and then you work for another semester and there's a break and then you know you also get sabbatical time to take if you need to use that for personal things and you know do work from home kind of stuff but I think that that would probably be the most flexible option for me in the future that would pay me a living wage also give me benefits that would cover the cost of my medicine for MS which is ridiculously expensive it's like over a hundred thousand dollars a year out of pocket if you don't have insurance and so a job like that would help pay for that too and you know they'd be more flexible with me so that's like my long-term goal right now but in the process of getting to that goal back in 2015 I'm sitting around thinking what can I do to make it you know because it's very 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 competitive to get an MFA in acting or directing most schools only accept like five or six people a year for acting and usually one or two for directing out of the whole country so what can I do to make myself a better candidate for that kind of journey that I might be embarking on and when when I was at Ohio State for my undergrad, I worked in a group called Interact with a capital A-C-T at the end of the word because we were actors. And it was a great experience. It was outreach theater. And basically what that means is we would go into communities and investigate problems those communities face and then improv them and then develop a script from those improvs that are basically like community-driven theater, like new works driven directly from the community. It was incredible, and I really loved it. And that was another dream I kind of always had was to come back to my hometown and do something like that. And so I never had the time or the money when I was working in able-bodied to kind of invest in anything like that. So when I was disabled and, you know, I still didn't really have the money, but now I had tons of time, you know, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try something like that. And I think it would really be great because, you know, I did it in Columbus, Ohio. And of course, there's tons of community issues that can be explored there. But I'm thinking, you know, back where I'm from, my hometown, Martins Ferry, Ohio, we're in like the foothills of Appalachia here, you know, and we've got some very unique problems in the Ohio River Valley. And the things that I think theater could really shine an interesting light on. And so I started thinking, what do I want to do to make it sort of like what Interact was, but to tailor it specifically for the community back home? So I came up with Active Roles, also with a capital A-C-T, using that same little word trick, um, because we're actors again. And I wanted to work with kids, because I thought, you know, a lot of the adults that are in this area, they've already been victims of what this area can do to a person, because it used to be a thriving steel town. We had Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel and some other really big major international corporations that dealt with that, and also coal mining. And both of those industries are all but gone, and it's really been a hard hit for our community around here. People are out of work. It's hard to find a job with a living wage. And so there are things that exist for adults artistically already in this area. But when I was growing up here, there weren't a lot of things for kids. And so I wanted to work with kids. And so as somebody who started doing high school theater, my very first play was my freshman year of high school. And it was coincidentally also the first year my high school had ever had a play since like the 1970s, you know, all the way up until then. So that was in 1999. So I just, I came on at the right time in high school, you know, nothing else in my community that was really like theater based. You couldn't take your kid to acting class or something like that. It just didn't exist and it still didn't exist. Well, there's a few options, but they're really expensive and they're prohibitive for kids from really underprivileged households. But I wanted to make something that's open and accessible for everyone. So I started putting out flyers and going to schools and talking to students and telling them what I wanted to do. And basically what that was was start a theater program at our local rec center called Active Roles, and we would deal specifically with 10-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And the reason I started 10 is because we work with a lot of public domain works and specifically like Shakespeare and things from that period because we don't have to pay royalties for them. So I want kids to have at least like a fourth or fifth grade reading level before they start diving into something as heady as Shakespeare. So yeah, I've been working with 10 to 18-year-olds now since 2016, so this is our fourth year in operation, and we do outreach theater like I did at Ohio State, where we talk about problems in our community, and then we improv that, and then I take all of their improv notes home and write a script, and then we produce that as a radio show that's on several different low-power FM stations in our area. So we started doing that, and then we have this stage in our local community park here, which is right next to the restaurant and the rec center takes care of the stage too and I thought what a great place to have Shakespeare in the park and they've never in our town's history and Martin's is like one of the oldest settlements in Ohio never in the town's history has there been Shakespeare in the park 
So we did that for the first time in 2017, and we've done it each year since, and that's been a huge success too. So that was kind of my jump from my early dreams of what I wanted to do to being the educator in the sense that I am today. It's so neat. I love the work that you're doing. Thank you. Can you talk to us about the terminology disabled person versus a person with a disability? Yeah. And there's no rule here. It's all preference, but there are very, very specific reasons that one person might prefer one to the other. And most people have pretty strong feelings about it. I would never, ever dream of telling somebody not to identify as a person with a disability as opposed to a disabled person, because that's their choice. That's how they see themselves and how they view themselves. And I think policing those kinds of things is kind of terrible. But for me, I identify as a disabled person. And that took me a couple of years to hit on after getting sick and having permanent disabilities. And basically, the thing is, is when you're disabled, you find out pretty quickly that there's actually a lot of oppression in this community. And it's not something I expected when I got sick. I mean, my my previous thoughts of being around disabled people were mostly elderly people with disabilities. And most people have a pretty positive feeling about that group. There's not a lot of hatred towards the elderly. And so I just assumed young disabled people just fit into that kind of category too, where it's just like, oh, well, yeah, we're a group that has problems getting access to things. And of course, society's not accessible physically in a lot of ways to get things, not having ramps in places or, you know, menus that don't have braille or different things like that. But I had no idea that there was like a lot of hostility towards disabled people when I first got sick. And it took a couple of years for that to really hit home. And also the people that have roles in the community, whether they be through corporations or through services that all communities have, when you bring up accessibility problems, it's not that they're hostile necessarily always. They can be, but not always. But in those situations, it turns into a burden more than anything. And maybe it's going to cost money to make something accessible or you're hiring someone and that person says, oh, well, you know, I kind of need access to unlimited bathroom breaks or something like that. And there's a lot of shutdown on those things. Like, oh, do you really need that? You know, they start questioning you. It's like, yeah, I live this every day. I know what I really need. You know, I'm not trying to be a pain in the butt here. But a lot of people end up treating you kind of like you're a pain in the butt. And that's actually a pretty common problem. And so for me, when... I identify as a disabled person as opposed to a person with a disability. That's identity first language versus person people first language. And that's useful to me because it puts the cards on the table up front. I am disabled, period. This is not negotiable. My body isn't going to magically do the things you want it to do because it's inconvenient for you or it's going to cost you money. And I'm not going to have this argument. So for me, it's like a subconscious kind of it sets the precedent, I think. Whereas when you say I'm a person with a disability, a lot of the stories I hear and some of the things I've run into myself were like, well, we're all people. We've all got different challenges. We've all got different problems. And I do what I can. And why aren't you trying to be a team player too? And it's like, I am trying to be a team player, but I still need a wheelchair ramp. You know, that's not going to change. And it's just so ridiculous sometimes. And it's almost like a parody of what you would expect it to be. That's how it hit me. I'm like, is this for real? You know, people are actually like this. And it really took a while for me to kind of cope with that. But then when I started thinking a lot about identity and the importance of how we identify, that's when it really became clear to me. It's like, yeah, the person first language, I do want people to see me as a whole human person. I am not just my disability, but my disability affects literally everything in my life. And so we can't ignore it. And so when I try to put my personhood first, I usually get trampled on. (laughs) And so my disability first is the faster way of getting me the things that I need to function in society. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because I just saw some new special about pregnant women who were working in professions that required them to like lift or do some physical activity, like somebody who is a a person who works on an ambulance or a person who works in a prison. Actually, one was about a prison worker. And once they became pregnant, 
they went to their employer and said, well, I've been told that I can't do X, Y, or Z. Like I can't lift anything more than 50 pounds or I can't do anything super strenuous. And they were told, well, you either have to do it or you have to quit or we're going to fire you. It kind of brought up the point that there's not really laws in place for that. So it kind of makes me, what you just said reminds me like a pregnant woman, it's probably better to say I am a pregnant woman instead of I am a woman with pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you need to make some kind of allowances for me so I can do what I need to do, if that's it. Right. I, I literally had a friend the other day that was looking at a job position that was opening up in the theater world and in the job description, it said mostly sedentary, but occasionally requires lifting of 50 to 75 pounds and sitting mm -hmm. or stand. And so, you know, it was just like, you know, there's gotta be, I just, it, it, it just astounds me when those things become a part of like, Oh, you're the manager of a theater. Can't they get you a cart? <laughs> you know, hey, if, if I can't lift 50 to 75 pounds. Can't I use a cart or can't I just ask another employee for assistance? So I'm not, even going to have a shot at a job like that because of this kind of asinine requirements it's written into it before they even start seeing people so without any kind of allowances for here's what we'll do for you if you can't do this right 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 it's like they don't want to work with you right almost like they just want to shut out a certain segment of the population before they've even had a shot so that's what right. it always comes down to in yep. a lot of those positions yeah. So how would you define a disabled person? Because I think, you know, we, you were just talking about how a lot of times we think of somebody strictly in a wheelchair or someone who's elderly, but I really think we could expand our thinking on that. So how would you define a disabled person? For me, it's very, very broad. And that is because so many people suffer with so many things that just almost become a joke to people who don't suffer from those things. And if we considered those disabilities too, it would probably help those people get more resources. So, you know, I mean, I've got kind of a mid-range disability if you, I mean, that's kind of an ableist thing to even think about, like what, how bad is one disability versus another, because any disability is going to affect you. And it's like, that's another problem is just, you don't want to start into this like disabled Olympics where it's like, well, my disability is worse than this person's disability. So I, this person, you know, has way more disabilities than I do. And it's just not a productive road to go down and it ends up getting people very upset. So that's one thing I try to stay away from. And so by keeping the definition that I use of disability as being very, very, very broad, I think that is more inclusive and the more people that identify as disabled, the bigger our numbers will be and hopefully the louder we can be for activism for disability. So there's also a lot of pushback on talking about disability as physical disability or cognitive disability or developmental disability. Those have all been terms that have been used in the past, but it's starting to not be super cool to talk about disability in that way because it almost is always at the detriment of people who have what we would consider cognitive disabilities, you know, disabilities and thinking and how they process information and learning and those sorts of things. And it's usually people more like, I have some cognitive disabilities too, because I do have some damage to my brain from MS, but most of my disabilities are on my spinal cord. They just affect my hands being numb, my legs being spasmy and weak and having those kinds of problems. And what happens is a lot of people with disabilities that are more like mine, say, oh, well, I'm physically disabled, and they want to make that distinction because there's this idea that being physically disabled is superior to being cognitively disabled, which is complete trash. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and it gets used as like this kind of sinister way among even people who have disabilities. So it's just like, it's not super cool, and it's something that, you know, I've identified as a physically disabled person in the past, and it's something I'm trying to not do moving forward. Just, I'm a disabled person. You know what? I, I'll tell you what I need, but nobody is entitled to more specific information than that, really. So, Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot to think about, because I think we're in a society where we want to put labels on things and very specific labels. Right. But I've never really thought about how one could be thought of as superior to another, so... 
Right, right. And in a lot of ways, labels are helpful. And because disability is so broad, it's helpful in a medical sense when doctors are discussing disability with patients, talking about it. That way you understand what's happening to you better. It's also helpful in like an insurance sense it's for health insurance because you're more likely to get the actual services you need if you have a proper diagnosis and other than just saying I'm disabled you know so it's definitely necessary in those senses but just in casual conversation saying I'm physically disabled it almost always comes as a thing of just like I'm trying to make sure these people are aware that I'm not cognitively disabled because that's something really bad you know nobody wants that and it's just kind of gross. So, so yeah, and I mean, there's a, and also, as part of that question, too, a lot of people who are in the disability community don't actually consider themselves disabled based on what, what their different problems are, or what, what issues they deal with. And a lot of that, I know a lot of people in the blind community that do not identify as disabled, same as the deaf community, and also the autism community. And for them, most of them at least, and I can't speak on their behalf, but from the people I know, they have problems or issues that have been with them mostly from birth, maybe even childhood, you know, early childhood. And so that's their baseline zero, you know, that's what what, what life is for them. And so like saying that you need to fix that or change that, or it's like, no, I'm fine. I'm happy. I've always been this way. It's society that has the problem, you know, because there's not Braille on menus, like I said, or there's not ASL interpreters at every public event you attend, you know. And so, you know, these people are living their lives, but to get some of those resources they need, like having insurance options to get an ASL interpreter, if you're going to a job interview and you know you need to bring your own interpreter or to get something translated into Braille, just it's better to have those resources or people with autism to get different therapies that they need to just help them be more compatible when communicating with people who don't have autism. And it's just like they just communicate differently in a lot of senses. And so getting them that help, but it should be on the people. So there's a lot of rabbit hole stuff you can go down with. But most of it ends up being the rest of society isn't like paying any attention. So people who don't even identify as disabled need these services just so they aren't having constant headaches battling with people who are kind of oblivious to it. So Right. Yeah, no, it's really great for us to think about as educators. So I definitely appreciate those perspectives. And you've already talked a little bit about this, but what has been surprising to you as a disabled person and the way that you've been treated since being diagnosed? Like I said, some of the stuff I touched on earlier, and just to kind of expand on that a little bit, how openly hostile people can be sometimes. I just never, ever in my wildest dreams when I was able-bodied dreamt that disabled people dealt with the things that I've experienced since I became disabled to my detriment back then. You know, I wish I would have been more aware of the problems that disabled people have because it's really terrible. But there, especially, it depends on where you go to. I think there's regional differences in just the attitudes that people have in general. If you're going to a big city, people are a lot more open and a lot more accepting and a lot less skeptical. (laughs) And you don't run into as many interpersonal problems with strangers as you might in a more rural area where people are a little more skeptical of things. And just to be more specific, I've actually been stopped in parking lots on three separate occasions in the last two years and been verbally accosted by a stranger accusing me of not actually being disabled or wanting to know what my problem was that I was parking in an accessible parking spot for a disabled person. (laughs) And it was just like, wow, (laughs) I never, I I mean, I know there's like a culture, you know, in this country where it's like, oh, well, people who get disability or Medicaid or Medicare, most of them are probably fakers that are just screwing the system. And they're very, like, it's fraud, you know, they think it's fraud. And that's what they're looking for. They're trying to find instances of fraud to kind of support this idea that they have that everybody, there's very few people that actually have legitimate problems. 99% of people are just scheming the system. And that's the attitude that I've had on all three of those occasions where somebody has come up to me and asked me either, hey, why are you parked in that or do you mind me asking what your issue is? <laughs> or, you know, um, it's, just, it's just nuts. And it's 
scary and it makes you feel really unsafe and especially one time it happened after dark and it was a much older man who was much bigger than me and I was just right. kind of terrified and yeah and I was at the mall by myself when that happened and suddenly I've got somebody yelling at me because I'm parked in a disabled spot where I'm entitled by law to park because I have a disability and having to explain it. So it's almost to the point where I've thought about even getting some stickers made or like a bumper sticker for my car that says donate to the MS foundation or society or something like that. Or even putting like something on the back of my wheelchair. That way people stop asking me questions. And another thing is when I am using my wheelchair and then I need to stand up for something, people just lose it. <laughs> they just, it's like if you're not paralyzed from the waist down, they don't want you to be using a wheelchair and they think that you're faking it or something. They don't see it as the tool that it is. So, right. um, so those have just been some of the really, I mean, like I said, I've been diagnosed since 2014 and have permanent disability since then. And there's only been a handful of times in those five, six years that something like that's happened, but it happens enough that it's troubling and problematic and really scary for disabled people in general to have to deal with those sorts of things. Yes, for sure. All right. So as you have entered the world of education, how have you adapted your teaching to better meet the needs of your students? These could be able-bodied students or disabled students, just any students, but what have you noticed yourself adapting because of your experience? You know, I I go out of my way to accept what my students tell me at face value and not question them. I mean, there's there's exceptions to that, but 90% of the time, and this is the biggest problem in the disability community, is when people don't believe your disability. You know, it's like, well, do I need to carry around my MRIs with me so I can show people where the damage to my spinal cord is? Mm -hmm. And so just going out of your way and giving someone the benefit of the doubt and believing them when they tell you something. And with kids, kids come up with some stuff, you know, <laughs> and sometimes it's kind of far-fetched. And your gut might even be that, mm, I don't know, but I, even when my gut is telling me that this kid might be playing me a bit, I still go with it because the alternative is not believing somebody who potentially has a disability that I don't understand. And that is the worst feeling for any disabled person. And so I never want to put anybody in that position. And so even if that's something as simple as, oh, this kid is in a Shakespeare show and they're putting on makeup and all they say they've got an allergy to some random makeup product and it seems kind of bizarre like they're inventing on the spot I mean sometimes it does seem that way but I just say okay we will swap that out and we will get you something else rather than making that kid feel bad about it and with invisible disabilities that's such a huge thing too because technically I was disabled for many many years before I got diagnosed in 2014 I just didn't know it and so like I said I beat myself up over things a lot like oh I must just be a lazy person or I just must be inferior to these other people because I can't keep up with them and I'm tired all the time and my thinking is fuzzy and I can't concentrate on things. I must not be very smart and I must be lazy and I just kind of, you know, it makes you feel like a worthless person and somebody would have investigated a little more like, why is this person feeling this way? And I think 90% of the time, even more than 90% of the time, whenever we label someone as lazy, there's almost always an underlying issue there and you're just not digging deep enough so I never want to make any of my students feel lazy or like they're not trying hard enough because I think people try as hard as they can and that is the expectation that I just believe and so I try to move forward with that and that goes for able-bodied students and my students with disabilities because like I said some of those kids could end up having invisible disabilities and I guess the other thing is trying to meet the kid or the student where they are, finding out as much as I can, you know, as much as they're willing to disclose to me up front helps me adapt for them and adjust for them in my coursework. And we've had to do a lot of that over the years. And one student in particular was one of my best students. This kid was just outstanding, but he had a really severe stutter. And it, especially if you start getting worked up or flustered and a lot of acting, you know, is kind of putting yourself in vulnerable positions in front of other people and it can kind of get those emotions boiling up. And he just stuttered so, so, so much that it was really hard for him to get through anything and to be understood. And I was committed to getting this kid in this part because he was a great actor and he was really into it. 
but he was worried that he was going to get on stage in front of an audience and be embarrassed if he couldn't get it under control. And I didn't want him to be in that position either. So we really researched it a lot. And it turned out, we found out that you don't stutter when you sing. And I didn't know that before I had that student. A different part of the brain is in control of singing rather than speaking. And so we were doing Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, and we just made his character sing the entire show, basically. He had a couple of lines, short little few words here and there that we tried to get him through. And I said, even though, I said, even if that gets to the point, though, where you're having trouble getting it out, just start singing it, you know? And so that was our go-to plan. And Oh my god it was so good and his mother was in the audience and he was like a junior or senior in high school at the time and his mother came up to me crying after the show because she just was at the point where she didn't think that that was ever going to be possible for him and he just gave a stunning performance I mean the kid just blew it out of the water he was amazing and it worked because you know in Shakespeare specifically it's already poetic so singing it makes like perfect sense really you know um like that was probably the biggest win we've had at active roles and just you know it worked so perfectly for the kid it worked great for me the parents were happy and it was a huge success story and so it's like that's what you always want it you want to make every story that kind of success story and so just giving it the attention it deserves and digging a little deeper finding out what's really going on yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'm sure that people listening will love that too because we're music teachers and we love just to hear like the power of singing. It's awesome. Okay. I think it's also good for us to think about what you were saying earlier as far as believing students because I think sometimes, especially as music teachers, we often will teach hundreds of students and in some cases, thousands of students per week. And so we sometimes will have a lot of students coming to us. It could be like a few a day will come and say, like, I don't feel well, or my stomach hurts, or I have a headache or something like that. And it's really easy to just say, like, oh, you're fine. You know, because such a limited amount of time with students, we're only seeing them once a week often, and you have hundreds or thousands of students. And so it's just really easy to just kind of feel like you're fine, you're fine. So I think it's really good for us to think about what can really we do to meet the needs of every student, including the ones who come to us and aren't feeling well, instead of just dismissing them or thinking, having our gut reaction be they're faking it or they're fine or they're being a hypochondriac or something like that, you know? Right, right. And I think a lot of that when the students are, you know, faking it, you know, like they have a stomach ache, but they don't really have a stomach ache. I know that happens. I think what's really going on is just anxiety. They have anxiety that they are not able to control at this point. So they invent the stomach ache because that's easier to talk about than what emotional process they have going on that's making them feel unable to do whatever it is. And I see that happening a lot. You know, in fact, I've done that with my own disability where it's gotten to the point where it's just like, I feel this, but then it's like, wait, do I really feel that? Or is there something else going on that I'm not able to articulate right now? You know, so it's just like rooting out, like, what is this really? (laughs) Or sometimes it does feel like a stomachache, but it's because of anxiety. It's hard to get to Right. Yep. You can literally make those, manifest those symptoms because of anxiety. And I definitely consider anxiety to be a disability. Anxiety and depression are probably two of the most common disabilities in the world, you know? I mean, I think everybody deals with those at some point in their life. And when you have them chronically, then it's definitely a diagnosable disability. Uh, I think there's a lot of untreated things like that that go on with kids where they just can't express how they're feeling. So it turns into a stomach ache. Or, you know, sometimes, like I said, I've had kids kind of try me on with some things like, I'm allergic to this, I'm allergic to that. And it's just like, if you're allergic to it today and not tomorrow, I'm fine with that because there's something you're working through and I'm not sure what it is. And I will try to help you if you want me to. But I know that that means that this kid isn't a liar. They're not a bad kid. They're having some kind of internal process that they need to make this distinction right now. So I just take it as whatever it is. And I try to not be judgmental about it. It can be hard, you know, Um, like you said, when you're dealing with a lot and there's a lot going on, but just trying to find that moment to take that extra breath and be like, okay, this is a child, (laughs) you know, I want them to be my version of what I want them to be, but that's not who they are. And so just letting them come to me when they want to and making sure my door is open for them if they do have something they want to talk about or get off their chest. Yeah, I love that. I want them to be my version of who I think they should be, but that's not who they are. Yeah, that's something great for us to think about as educators and as parents, you know, that's great. 
All right, so if we think specifically about the music room, I realize you're not a music teacher, but as music teachers, you know, if we were to kind of like transfer some of these ideas to the music room, we often will have like singing games that involve chasing or creative movement or dance. And I've struggled with that because sometimes I'll have a student show up in a wheelchair because they maybe just had a surgery or something. And I was not warned Mm -hmm. or hand this is maybe not the best word, but I wasn't told beforehand, like, hey, by the way, this student is going to come in a wheelchair, so you need to kind of think through your lesson. And so I have to, like, make last-minute, on-the-spot adjustments to my lessons based on what the student has just come into my classroom. So are there any, like, adaptations that you can think of that would work well for that? You know, students who, when we're dancing or moving around the room or chasing games or anything like that? In general, when... And as somebody, sometimes I walk with a cane, sometimes I use a wheelchair. At home, I can usually get around my house unassisted, you know, so different environments are different for different disabilities, too. Big open spaces tend to be places where people who do have gait problems or walking problems in the most jeopardy in those situations. And so, like, at my house, for instance, I can walk through my house without my cane, but I'm going down hallways, and I'm going past sofas and and chairs, and, and, you know, if my legs started to give out on me, and I know my home well enough, then if I started to fall, there's something I could grab onto, and I know I'm not going to fall down hard enough to get hurt. Whereas, when I'm in my classroom, you know, unless I'm really having a flare-up of my MS and it's been extra bad for me, I usually use my cane in the classroom because it's almost like that where there's seats and things like that. But when we go out to work in the park to do Shakespeare in the park, there's not a lot in between the classroom and the park that I could hang on to. So I'm almost always in my wheelchair when I'm out there unless I'm just getting up on the stage to fix something. And so a lot of people that have those issues with walking kind of fit into that category where it's like, well, I can walk fine in this scenario, but in this scenario, I'm not going to be able to walk at all. And so doing things like dances and chasing and things like that, um, there's no way somebody like me, I could do those things. I can get a little bit of speed going if I'm like holding onto the back of the couch and running around the couch or something, you know, playing with a pet or something like that. But to actually chase somebody, I would probably almost definitely fall down and break a bone. Um, And even when I walk from my front door to my mailbox through my yard, you know, we don't have a gate or anything, so there's nothing to hang on to. And even that can be kind of scary for me. And so when I'm in my wheelchair, the problem is with those kinds of activities is that you've become kind of the person who could potentially do damage or harm to others because you're in this device that is kind of, you know, not necessarily always the easiest to control. So that can be scary too, but you don't want to be the person hurting other people either, you know. And a lot of acting exercises that I've been asked to do in the last couple of years has kind of been in that category where I'm in a room full of able-bodied people who can walk, run, do jumping jacks if they feel like it. And I'm the only person with a disability like that. And so if we're like doing an exercise where we're exploring space for acting or like viewpoint kind of stuff, it's, I can't participate fully because I'm so aware that I could be running over somebody's toes in a second with my wheels, or I could be slamming into something that I didn't see and breaking a set piece. And it's not like the greatest position to be in. And so in general, when I ask my students to do certain things, I gauge the room, I gauge the abilities of the room and any disabilities and decide if it is a safe activity for everybody. And if it's not, then I just don't do it. It gets scrapped and I'll come up with something else that kind of has the same mechanism without the ableist connotations to it. And usually it works. I can't think of any times that I haven't been able to come up with something comparable that didn't get the message across or didn't get the point of the exercise across. So I guess depending, if you have a group of students that they can all do it, fine, you know, and I've had those groups in my classroom before, and I'm the one that sits the exercise out, and I just observe them doing it. But when I've had students in wheelchairs or with service dogs or, you know, who use walkers or crutches or anything like that, and I can tell this is not going to be an ideal circumstance for them, we just find a different way of doing that acting activity. And a lot of it's similar to kind of music room activities where we use rhythm and beat and breathing and almost like this meditative rhythmic exercise to start letting your character kind of erupt from you. And a lot of times it's just as powerful just to have everybody sit in a circle and hold hands and do like a tapping hand to hand exercise to get to that same place. 
but like I said, that's for theater. And, you know, I know music is a lot more and more involved in those kinds of things. So I'm not sure what I would say for that. But yeah, that's kind of my rule of thumb. Yeah. I like the idea of thinking through just what I'm taking from what you just said. Is it kind of like think through the lesson if you can beforehand, if it's not for the moment kind of thing and kind of think like, how can this exercise or how can this game be done where everybody can do it instead of having like you sit out of this activity because it involves chasing and you can't run? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that it's come up for me before too, where it has been a spur of the moment thing where a kid shows up and they're like, oh, I had surgery this weekend. I forgot to tell you, you know, I was like, oh, great. You know, and it's like, oh, I wish I would have done two days earlier, but you know, (laughs) yeah. And and usually at that point, I just completely throw everything out that we were going to do and just improvise. And I hate that, you know, that's not like the best teaching scenario to be in and for me too on the spur of the moment kind of things like that are stressful for me but I guess in in that situation I would rather the stressful situation be on me and not the student so we we just kind of come up with something on spot like well here's what we were going to do so how can we make this something that we can all still do and a lot of times I'll involve the kids with that too and a lot of times they'll come up with a solution so Yeah, just open communication and (laughs) non-judgment and trying to make it work for everybody. That's basically my biggest rule for what I do with my kids. Yeah, that's a great rule. All right. So we had a conversation over Christmas, actually, about different tools for music specifically, where students were able to still perform music, but with some like adaptive tools. So can you talk to us? You, there were a couple that you had mentioned to me, and then there were a few that I've learned about since, but you play violin. And how long have you been playing violin? About six years. And I've been in lessons on and off for that time, but I just actually signed up for weekly lessons again, starting after New Year's and that and piano now. I'm playing piano now too. (laughs) We'll see how that goes with the numb hand. (laughs) (laughs) So this violin bow, Talk to us about this like adaptive tool for the violin bow that you found. Yeah, basically my biggest problem with violin was, and I started taking violin lessons literally four months before I had my MS relapse. That was the one that got me diagnosed in 2014. And so I didn't have hand problems when I started, but four months later I had severe hand problems. And with MS, it's kind of one of those weird diseases where after a relapse, things can go back to normal, but sometimes they don't completely go back to normal. And that was kind of the position I was in because there was a few weeks where I had hardly any use at all of my right hand. I couldn't even pick up anything. I couldn't pick up a glass of water and take a drink. But I got medicine and treatment and then I went to hand therapy, which I failed out of, but it helped a little bit. But I was determined that I wasn't going to give up on the violin. This is something I wanted to do for a really long time. And I did not want to let MS be the thing that stopped that from happening. And so luckily at the time, my violin teacher also had MS. And so she was able to give me some pointers and help with that. But eventually what I did was I bought a carbon fiber bow which is much, much, much lighter weight than a typical bow. And so that helped some because the numbness in my hand is also a weakness. Like I have poor muscle control and it's all from nerve damage. So it's like the muscles themselves are fine, but it's the nerves. And so the carbon fiber bow helped a lot, but it still wasn't perfect. And I was in a Christmas concert a couple of years ago. And in the middle of the concert, I was so proud of myself. I was doing so good. And I was even getting some vibrato going. And I was like, oh, this is sounding great. I'm so happy. I literally dropped my bow, the carbon fiber bow, it just fell out of my hand because I wasn't paying close enough attention to what my right hand was doing and it came back and hit me in the forehead and then flopped over and hit the girl next to me who was the page turner and it was just yeah it was horrible and just like everybody understood you know because a my violin teacher is also disabled and has MS and you know she creates that kind of environment and they understood that b I also had MS and so it was it was just one of those MS blunders that pops up from time to time. And it's embarrassing and horrible, but it happens all the time. So stuff like that. So what I started searching for was just, I went to hand therapy and the hand therapist actually did like this 3D printed glove um, that I was able to wear to help me keep my hand around the bow. But as I got more advanced in my playing and was doing like more switching from first string to fourth string without going in between or anything, um, that kind of flexibility that you need in your bow hand, the glove didn't work anymore. And so at that point, I started just perusing the internet 
and I found this thing on Amazon that it was actually a tool for a child, like a very, very young child, like a four or five year old who is beginning violin with like a quarter size violin. Um, and they put it on there just to teach them where to put their fingers to hold the bow. So they're not like grabbing it like they would grab a banana or something, you know. And I thought, I'm going to give that a try. And maybe it will be enough physical contact with my fingers that it will keep my hand from just going off on its own and dropping the bow. And I got it. And it actually does. It works great. It keeps my pinky in the right place because that's something I really struggle with because I've gotten the most numbness on that side of my, the pinky side of my hand. But it keeps my other hands flexible enough that I'm not like death gripping the bow but I can hold on to it and play. And, and I still don't sound fantastic. My bowing is still not smooth. It's something I'm still working on, but it has helped so much. And if I hadn't gotten that thing, I probably would have just sold my violin and given up on it at this point. So that was a really great thing. But again, that wasn't made or marketed for disabled people. It was just one of those accidental things where it's like, oh, this device is like perfect for something like this. It, it acts as a prosthetic for what I need it for, for the numb parts of my hand. So that was just like a happy accident. <laughs> Yeah, and if you can send me a link to that, I could put that in the show notes uh, so that oh, yeah, definitely. someone teaches strings and wants to check it out, they can. And then you're talking yep, to sure. about an adaptation that the band director at your former high school, am I, am I thinking correctly? That yep, that's correct, yeah. So I am in my hometown now doing my theater program, and I've been working with my former theater teacher at Martin Terry High School, and she is also, well, she was primarily the band director and the music teacher there, and uh, like a lot of band and music teachers, she's just gotten more dumped on her over the years, so she also is in the jazz band and the choir and orchestra and theater as well now, and she's also got a disability. She's got lupus, and so been very high on her radar as well as how do we make space in the music program and the theater program for kids with disabilities? And I went to school in the 90s and kids with disabilities were treated much, much differently back then and not in a good way. In a lot of ways, they were segregated into other classes and they were picked on a lot by the other kids and the teachers didn't really go out of their way to help them either. But, you know, the, that culture at least has changed a good bit. I know some of that stuff still does happen, but most of them are integrated in classes with all the other kids now. It's fantastic. And so it's just been a much more visible thing having students with disabilities. And also the high school that I went to had three stories and no elevator. So a lot of students would go to different schools by high school because they couldn't get upstairs. And now they've built a new school and it's on one story. So there's more disabled kids at the school now than there were when I was in high school too. And so that has brought up this observation that, wow, we've got disabled students now and we see them and they're here and they exist, but they're not being integrated into these elective programs because we have no protocol for integrating them in and you know these are great kids and they want to be in the marching band and they want to be in the choir and they want to do theatrical productions and so this teacher has really gone above and beyond she's done outstanding work making sure that these students are included and basically what she's ended up doing is just inventing these ingenious devices that help these kids play an instrument and march on the field unassisted for the most part during marching season. And so one of them, the really the hallmark item that she made was uh, she took a walker and they put new wheels on it. They put casters on one side and then they put these almost like miniature bike wheels on the front of it so it doesn't get hung up on the football field. You know, most of the stadiums around here for high school have turf, but some of them still have grass fields. And so you want to make sure that wheel's not going to get jammed up in a divot out in the field somewhere and trip the kid up. And they welded, they got the shop department, the metal shop at the high school to weld on a seat that was like a seat like you would put an infant in in a swing at a playground. It almost looks like a little pair of pants, you know, it's got holes in it and you sit your butt down in it. And she got one of those and welded that to the frame of the walker. And it's welded in a way that if the student sitting in that seat walks, they can self-propel with their legs. This particular student had enough use of their legs that they can self-propel with them, almost like the Flintstones car, if you want to think of it that way. So if they lose their balance, though, the seat pushes down and the walker stops. And so it doesn't need brakes because the kid can either stop it themselves or they can just let their weight go down into it and it stops on its own. And then they took the harness for a bass drum and welded that to the front of the frame 
So they literally can strap the drum onto the front of this device. The kid can then be assisted into getting down into the seat of the device and putting their legs through the holes, and they can self-propel and march in marching season. And this is a kid that has cerebral palsy, uses a wheelchair a lot of the times, but has enough use of their legs that they can do that as well. And it was, it was stunning. I started crying the first time I saw it because I couldn't believe I saw a teacher going to such extreme lengths to make sure this kid was included. It was amazing. And she's come up with a couple other devices now on top of that. Um, there's another student in the band that also has a bass drum, but they've attached that to a wheelchair frame so that student doesn't have enough use of their legs to self-propel. And so they still have somebody that marches behind them, like a personal care aide comes with them to each high school game and pushes the wheelchair, but the student is still able to play the bass drum, which is a huge thing for these kids that 10, 15 years ago just would have been told, I'm sorry, you can't be in the band, you know, and not by that teacher, but just by society. You know, that would have been the standard back then, but it's just so remarkable to see that, oh, society is taking this serious now, and it's becoming a thing where it's like, oh, we're going to make this happen. We will find a way to put our brain power, you know, and collectively find a solution to this. Even if we have to invent some brand new thing, we're going to make it work. Yeah, it was stunning. It was really, really fantastic. Awesome. And there are a few other tools that I've just heard about. One of them is, and I'll link to this in the show notes as well. I don't remember the name of it exactly, but it's an ukulele tool that you can put onto an ukulele. So if you have students with limited finger dexterity, you put this tool on the ukulele and instead of having to do the chord shape with their left hand, they can simply click a button to play a C major chord and then click another button. For the music teachers listening, kind of like an auto harp, like you would just push a button and there's the chord. And what's exciting is someone else had said to me, you know, sometimes you can get tools like that with like special education funds or funds from IEP funding kind of thing. So I mm-hmm. did say something because I have at least one student that I was thinking of, but I think other students that could benefit from something like that. So I went to the intervention specialist at my school and told her about it and she ordered it. And it was only $25, but it's just, you know, that's something to think about as a music teacher is that there might be some kind of funding that you can use for tools like that. And then one that I shared with you, Megan, I think over Christmas was a recorder where instead of having to cover the entire hole with your finger, it's like a much smaller hole or a raised hole. I will link to that in the in the show notes as well. And then I also just heard about a flute that's like a different shaped flute. I think, again, for students with limited finger dexterity or limited use of their arms, it's easier to play flute because of the shape of the flute. So I love that there are so many more instruments and tools out now for disabled students so that they can be successful. Yeah, and a couple of other things just to tag onto that. I know a lot of kids in marching band that have limb differences that might not have both hands or, you know, people more like me. My hand isn't so bad that I can still play my violin. And like I said, I'm trying to play piano now, which I don't know how that's going to go. But in marching band, you know, trumpet's a great instrument, too, if you only have full use of one of your hands. Because you can usually play a trumpet with one hand if you would have to. And so that's a good instrument, too, for students that might only have full use of one hand. And then another thing that I heard a friend of mine talking about very recently, and I didn't know about this, is there's a huge movement for Braille music, like Braille sheet music. And a blind person that would want to use that sheet music has to learn a different type of Braille to understand it, from what I understand. But that's another great adaptive thing, you know, because sheet music typically translating that into something like Braille, I think is just something that's not on people's radar, you know? Um, So I thought that was incredible too. Um, And that was also, I found out about that also in conjunction with a group of deaf people and people who don't have use of their voice who are members of singing groups. And so, you know, the adaptations of rethinking what we think of as singing by being the vibration of our vocal cords and melodic patterns, there are other ways to create singing without necessarily making those vibrations. Um, So somebody that either lacks a voice box or they just don't have use of their vocal cords. I thought that was incredible too. Yeah, I would love to learn more about that. Awesome. So much good stuff, Megan. So which resources would you recommend for those um, who are wanting to do more work in this area and really think more broadly about all of the students in their classroom. 
it's hard, you know, because honestly, there aren't a lot of resources. Like I said, that's why my high school band director had to basically invent that walker device for that student to use because there's not a disability mart. You can't just go down the street and order these things for any, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I would love for something like that to exist, but it doesn't. So it's usually on the ingenuity of the people who are committed to making the thing happen, which is either inclusiveness in music, dance, theater, or whatnot. And I mean, there are resources that you can go to to the internet to learn more about these issues and to be a little more well-versed in them. One great website is The Mighty, and they post a lot of articles about disability in general, like not necessarily in a musical context or a theatrical context, but you can learn a lot about disability from The Mighty. And they address a lot of the issues that we've talked about today, too, like identity first versus person first language, things like that. So there are always resources like that online, but there are some resources to kind of just be leery of too, because some groups of, that talk about disabilities are actually considered hate groups. Really? And they, yeah, the ones that I'm thinking of are more to do with autism, but a lot of these groups have the idea that disability is something that needs to be eradicated from the world. And so like their entire goal is we need to find a cure to correct this problem for people who don't necessarily feel that there is a problem other than society not making things more accessible overall. Mm -hmm. So be leery of any groups that you would find online talking about different disabilities or chronic illnesses or things like that if they start using that kind of language. With my disability, I would love for there to be a cure for MS someday, but somebody who has something like cerebral palsy or is autistic, that's their baseline. That's what their life has always been, and they might not want a cure. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it's kind of presumptuous for able-bodied people to just assume that all disabled people want a cure or want to be fixed, quote unquote, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. Anything else that you'd like to share with us? Not that I can think of, no. We've covered a lot. (laughs) Yeah, so much good stuff. Well, I really appreciate it. Would you like to talk about what we're consuming? Sure. All right. So we now have Disney Plus. So the only thing that we've checked out on it so far is The Mandalorian. Have you seen The Mandalorian? Oh, yes. I love it so, so much. Okay. We've watched the first few episodes and have really enjoyed it. So we've been watching that, but we also just saw the new Star Wars movie and really enjoyed that as well. And I'm not like a super Star Wars fan where I know every single detail of every single movie, but I just think it's great movie making. So I really enjoyed that. And I have like a bunch of books on my bedside that I need to start reading, but I haven't yet. So that's what I'm consuming at this very moment, Star Wars. (laughs) So what are you consuming? Well, like I said before, I've got multiple disabilities and among those are pretty severe anxiety and depression and you talk therapist for that and I take anti-anxiety medicine but a lot of times you know environmental things or just life in general can get hectic and trigger these things and that has been my situation for the last four or five months having a lot of depression and anxiety and kind of my go-to when I get into these states is trying to just find things that are just pure happiness. And so I also have Disney Plus and I have been going down Disney Plus spiral, just, you know, watching anything and everything. I've got Disney Plus on like all the time now, watching old Mickey Mouse cartoons. Yeah. What's that? What all have you watched on Disney Plus? We haven't really dived into it like we um, well, I have watched and I have finished The Mandalorian, so no spoilers for me, but um, you're going to love it. And <laughs> Baby Yoda has changed my life. Like, if there's not pure oh joy gosh. attached to Baby Yoda, you cannot be unhappy while, while watching Baby Yoda. That's so and true. so that's been big. Yeah, but a lot of, uh, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I was, you know, in middle school, grade school and middle school in the 90s. And a lot of Disney shows that were on ABC in the afternoon after school when I was a kid are also on Disney Plus now. So that is fantastic. So I've been like binge watching shows like Darkwing Duck and the Rescue Rangers and Tailspin. And those were like, that was my childhood. So it's been a very comforting thing to watch. Then outside of that, I got a Nintendo Switch Lite for Christmas. And so I've been playing a lot of Mario style games because that's another like happy fantasy world, you know, something I can control. And then musically, I just listened to a lot of disco and funk and soul music from like the 70s. And that pretty much never fails to cheer me up at least a little bit. 
Yeah, that's awesome. We also, I, I think I already shared this with you, but we have a Nintendo Switch as well. And everyone, Scott, Macy, Jenna, all of us have been enjoying the Nintendo Switch, but Mario Kart is probably like the number one we love to play Mario Kart. Do you have Mario Kart for the Nintendo Switch Lite? I do not. The only game I've bought so far is Super Mario Odyssey, and I'm trying to, the games are kind of pricey, so I'm trying to, like, make myself play one game and beat one game before I go and buy another game. So, I only have the one game right now, but I've been playing a lot of those retro games on there, too, like the original Mario Brothers that you can play online through there. Yeah, we got Mario U, and then we also got, we love Mario, and then we also got Mario Odyssey, but we haven't played that one very much, so I'll be interested to see what you think about that. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. It, it. It's actually one of the better video games I've played in a really long time, so I'm really enjoying that. In fact, I just have to make sure I only play for maybe an hour a day because I go down the rabbit hole on that, too, and then it's like, oh, six hours later. I had no idea I've been playing for that long, but now the battery on the, the gaming device is dead, so I need to recharge it and actually go right. be productive for a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so I'm a little worried. I don't want it to ruin my productivity, you know, but I'm indulging a good bit. <laughs> awesome. Well, Megan, this has been so much great info. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, where can we find you? Mainly um, activeroles.org and the related email address of activeroles at gmail.com or my personal email, which I don't mind sharing, which is Megan Simcox at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for this great information. I think it'll be really helpful for music educators and educators in general to think about. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.